If you will, uh, join me in Psalm 16. Our sermon text is from Psalm 16, and I'll begin by reading. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply their drink offerings of blood. I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's Word. Let's pray together before we begin our time in thinking about God's Word. Father, we do pray that you would illuminate this passage to our minds and our hearts and that you would apply it to our lives. We pray that we would see herein uh, Christ and we would see him more clearly than before. In his name we pray, amen. We can think about our world and sort of the chaos that we've experienced, the instability of it, and probably all of us would say we long for stability. We long for the sort of security and safety in the midst of a life that is often turbulent. And we long for assurance in the face of suffering and fear and death. We may even want pleasure and happiness in this world that is seeking it in a plethora of places. And the question is, how can we find those things? I think this psalm helps to answer that. See, if you were a Christian in the first 300 years of Christianity, the first 300 years after Jesus' resurrection, you often faced severe persecution. And this ebbed and flowed depending on who was in charge, and it was often concentrated in local areas. But the experience of the early Christians was persecution. Uh, in the Roman Empire, which is where early Christianity was birthed, death was feared very much like our culture, like most cultures. And so death was something that the Romans kept kind of at bay. The Romans would build their graveyards underground. They would build them uh, under, uh, under places where they couldn't see them. And today we call these catacombs because they are underneath the ground. They're tombs underneath um, the, the visible space. And, and Romans wouldn't go down there. In fact, what they would do is they would send slaves down there. They would send other people down there to deal with the situation. They didn't want to go down there themselves. And because of that, Christians soon found a place where they could meet in a, in a way where the Roman government would not be aware of their meeting. They wouldn't have any sort of opposition by meeting in those places. And so Christians began meeting in these catacombs. And of course, Christians didn't fear death because they believed Jesus had conquered death. And so Christians would also bury their dead there along with worshiping there. You can see a number of symbols from the walls of those catacombs. They, they would draw their symbols, and, uh, and there are all these symbols on the wall, uh, one of which is especially important, one of the most common, was an anchor. 
And see, the anchor was meaningful because it represented Christ's ability to anchor them in the midst of persecution. It represented harbor from the storm. It represented safety in the midst of all the turbulence. Uh, Michael Card, who's not really a biblical scholar, but more of an artist, uh, says this about that time period. He said, the first century symbol wasn't the cross, it was the anchor. If I'm a first century Christian and I'm hiding in the catacombs and three of my best friends have just been thrown to the lions or burned at the stake or crucified and set ablaze as torches at one of Nero's garden parties, the symbol that most encourages me in my faith is the anchor. When I see it, I'm reminded that Jesus is my anchor. That's precisely what this psalm reminds us of. This psalm tells us that Christ anchors our life. That the place of security, the place of safety, the, the place of calm from the storm is found in Christ Jesus. And the psalm is all about him and the safety that he does offer. So one helpful practice in personal Bible reading is to ask, where does this passage make me un? comfortable? Where am I being challenged? If we're reading scripture and we're just saying, yeah, yeah, I agree with all of that, then we're not letting it challenge us enough. And as we open this psalm, I find it incredibly challenging right from the very first verse. I would describe it as something like a gut punch when the psalmist writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. The reason why I find it to be a bit of a gut punch and find it to be some, somewhat difficult to you know, apply to my life is because I don't always take refuge in God. I find my refuge in all sorts of places. I find my refuge in good health or stable finances or my family or my job or my ability to figure things out. And all of these, every single one of them represent a false refuge because none of them can actually sustain me and none of them are sustainable forever. They all represent ways that I try to anchor my life or fix my life to something in order to avoid getting swept away by the storms of life. And yet none of those things can promise that because none of those things are immune to being swept away from the storms of life. Some people find refuge in alcohol or drugs the fantasy worlds of television and now the internet can, can be a refuge for us. Or any of the examples I just gave, health, family, self-reliance, stable finances, all of those are areas where you too may be seeking refuge. A good way to illustrate this is just to ask some diagnostic questions. How many of you have ever had the experience of praying a prayer that God didn't seem to answer? Were you mad at God? Were you angry? Were you upset? I think that's a pretty good barometer of often what's going on in our hearts. See, I've been angry about unanswered prayers. I've been rebellious. I've quit praying because I've doubted its effectiveness or because I've thought it was pointless. I've quit reading scripture because I'm cynical. I've had all of those experiences and it's because what I'm doing is seeking refuge elsewhere. I'm looking for an aid elsewhere and I'm failing to seek refuge in the Lord. 
See, the typical human response, the, the response of idolatry in the human heart, is to find refuge in places other than the living God. To find refuge and safety in places other than the true God. Of course, all of those things will always let us down, but it's still the inclination or the default setting of the human heart to seek refuge in places that ultimately can't offer it. It is not typical. It is not the default setting for us to seek refuge in the Lord, even though we were made to do nothing else. Look at verse 4 in Psalm 16 with me. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. So their sorrows will increase. It won't fix the problem. Those other gods promise to fix the problem. They seem like they're holding out an answer. All these false refuges say here is safety, and yet the problems, the suffering only multiplies as a result. The psalmist continues, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. So here the psalmist is looking at these false gods, these false places of refuge, and he's saying, I'm not going there because they're empty. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take my, take their names on my lips. But what this verse does tell us is idolatry is more enticing than worshiping the living God. This verse does warn us that idolatry is a real concern. We are more passionate often and more energized in our idol worship than in our worship of the Lord. Often as human beings, we would rather chase false gods and false refuges than take refuge in the living God. One of the uh, German reformers, Andreas von Karlstadt, wrote, Love of God is a strong and intense longing for God. But... The soul does not find itself in this state, nor is it inclined to this. Our natural inclination is not to find rest in the Lord, which is precisely why we need a psalm like this to correct us and to usher us into finding our refuge, our anchoring in the Lord. See, our natural tendency is not to love God, but to love other things. And again, that's the gut punch, I think, for all of us this morning. It certainly is for me. Because it is true, and I know it to be true, from personal experience and from personal reflection. We seldom delight ourselves in the Lord as we should. We anchor our lives in all sorts of things outside of Jesus. And that's precisely the problem. Notice the first several verses of this psalm. So the psalmist shows us the right way. In verse 1 he says, In you I take refuge. So that's the whole basis of his prayer. To, to preserve him because it's in the Lord that he finds his refuge. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 3, I delight in your people. The saints of the land are my delight. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's everything I need, my food and my drink, everything I need for survival, everything to function and to live. Verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance, and that inheritance is none other than the Lord himself. One of the classic commentators on this psalm, Derek Kidner, writes in his commentary, almost every verse in this half of the psalm speaks of some aspect of single-mindedness, i.e. of throwing in one's lot with God in the realms of one's security. This single-mindedness focus betting on the Lord entirely. Now that's a tough place to get to. 
it's difficult to find ourselves with such single-mindedness and such focus that everything else is secondary except the Lord alone. And we see the problem here. We were made to find refuge in the Lord, but it isn't natural. Listen to what Augustine writes in the first paragraph of his Confessions. This is really part of a uh, famous quote that you'll see at the end of this. He writes, Yet to praise you is the desire of every human being. So, So at its core, that's really what we're all searching for. Humans, he goes on, long to extol you. You give us delight in glorifying you because you made us with yourself as our goal and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See, we were made to know God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, we were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our satisfaction is found in Christ. And while we were made to pursue the Lord and to find refuge in the Lord, Scripture is clear that we do not find this to be our natural inclination. We need to look no further than the story of Adam and Eve, our first parents, in the garden. They are made in the image of God, and yet the temptation that is so attractive to them is that they would be like gods themselves. And so they reject everything about what the Lord has done, and they seek refuge elsewhere. And even after that, they continue to seek refuge, not in the Lord's presence, but from withdrawing and hiding from the Lord. And such is the state of humanity. So what do we do? Now, as always, and I have to be absolutely clear about this, this isn't a psalm telling us to try harder. Nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in the gospel of Jesus is that the idea that we just try harder. Always when we approach Scripture, and especially as we're thinking about the Psalms, we have to listen for the voice of Christ. Because it's in these Psalms that we hear Christ Himself speaking. Only He can speak these words without falsehood. Only Christ lives in perfect communion with the Father. He's the only one who can say the words of this psalm, in you I take refuge, I have no good apart from you. He's the only one who has ever lived that perfectly. Every other human has failed in that regard. Only Christ has the single-minded focus we see in this psalm. And therefore, it is only by looking to Christ and depending on Him that you and I have any hope of sharing in this focused life depicted in the psalm. The only way that we have any hope of embodying this idea of being anchored in Christ is by looking to Him. This means that Christ didn't just set us free from eternal death. See, it's not just Jesus' death that wins our salvation. It's actually His obedient life, His perfect love of God and neighbor. Whereas Adam sought to find refuge elsewhere in the garden, Jesus constantly rests in the Father. And He did this for us. Christ already possessed eternal life, and yet He comes emptying Himself in the words of Philippians 2 in order to serve us. And He came to fulfill the law so that you and I might have eternal life, so that you and I may no longer be found guilty of Adam's failure. And so, as I said, this means that Christ didn't just set us free from eternal death, but He set us free from a life looking for refuge everywhere else. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 4. 
And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. So the idea is that we are enslaved to uh, this false set of refuges. But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom or to redeem us who were slaves to the law so that He could adopt us as His very own children. So slaves to those basic principles of the world, but Jesus is born under the law in order to free us from those basic spiritual principles. And look how Paul concludes this argument in verses 8 through 10. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. Here's the point he's making. We're compelled to look for refuge in all the wrong places. And this is especially true of religious people. See, our our tendency as religious people is to think that by observing religious ritual that we are going to find refuge. And that's what Paul's talking about when he mentions the observance of days and months and seasons and years in verse 10 of Galatians 4. We make themselves and our efforts a refuge. We look for ways to keep rules that will please God. But remember, there's only one. There's only one who has pleased God, and that is Jesus Christ. He is our obedience. He is our righteousness. And so, wherever we are tempted to run for refuge is something that we need to try to shine a light on this morning. The remedy to our problem, our problem being that we seek refuge in the wrong places, is to depend on Christ. This is the very meaning of refuge after all, isn't it? That we would depend on Christ. We can't do it for ourselves. We have to find it elsewhere. The answer is not that you and I need to change our life and start following more rules. The answer is not to try really, really hard to love God. The answer is that you and I need to give up our self-reliance and go to Christ, our only refuge, the anchor for our life. Calvin once wrote, When we come before God, we must lay aside all presumption. Our obedience in itself is nothing and is not worthy of any reward. Everything about the gospel runs up against our pride because it tells us we can't do it. The gospel is good news not because it says you can do it, but because it says we can't do it and yet there is one who has done everything. And it is completely finished once and for all. That is the good news of the gospel. So listen carefully. If you wish to find stability in this life, if you desire assurance in the face of death, in the face of uncertainty, in the face of suffering, if you want pleasure and happiness in this anxious and excessive world, you will only find those things in Christ who both lived and died for us. And more than that, who lives for us today. He alone is our refuge. He alone will anchor our life. And that's because, as we see very clearly in Psalm 16, verse 10, death itself could not hold him. Let me just point that verse out to you. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Here we have the very promise of the gospel in the Old Testament. The promise that the anointed one of God will not remain dead, but will rise and live forever and ever. He is alive. And because he is alive, as the New Testament repeatedly tells us, we too can share in his resurrection. But not because of doing anything, but by looking to him. To use the New Testament language, it is by being in Christ, being united to Him, being in Christ. And then we share in His death and in His resurrection. And so only in Christ, only in Him, will we be able to say with the psalmist here in verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because it's only by being united to Christ that we come to know God, or rather be known by God. It's only by being united to Christ that we will see through all the mess and through all the false refuges. It's only by being united to Christ that we will find an anchor in a world that is dark and uncertain the majority of the time. I love this uh, more recent song written by Chris Rice, and I think it summarizes the point well. Here's the first verse. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. My prayer is that we would do just that this morning. Let me pray for us and then I'll close with our benediction. Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would help us to see, first, our need for you. And then that you would open our eyes to come to you. That you would open our hearts wide to know you and to be known by you. To abide in you and to dwell with you. Lord, I pray that we would find great hope here. And Lord, I pray for those in our congregation those names that are on our prayer list, those who are suffering and those who are keeping it close to themselves. Lord, I pray that they would find in you an anchor. I pray that if they must endure difficult times, that they would find your presence thicker and stronger than ever. And that even through unspeakable suffering, they would find great hope. And they would continue to point to you, who is our anchor. Lord, I pray that it would be true of our church, of our entire congregation, and of just our organization as a whole, that we would find our anchorage in you, and that we would not look elsewhere. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, our benediction is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it reminds us of the steadfastness that we're called to. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen.